Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the pastor at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, alongside our guest, Nate Stuckey, we are going to go play in the mud a bit and talk about a new documentary called Biggest Little Farm out this coming weekend. Adam, Avengers Endgame has made $2 billion. I'm not sure Biggest Little Farmer is going to take it down, but (laughs) we'll see. But this little documentary has got some big heart and some big ideas about nature and agriculture and stewardship and creation. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Nate and Adam how Biggest Little Farm might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Biggest Little Farm for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the fourth week of Easter, year C, May 12th. And in our third segment, Postludes, Matt and I will take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far, let me introduce our guest, Nate Stuckey. Nate is the director of the Farminary at Princeton Theological Seminary. The Farminary is a working farm that serves as a site for theological education for the seminary community. Nate has also just published a book called Wrestling with Rest, inviting youth to discover the gift of Sabbath. Nate, it has taken us too long to have you on the show, but I'm so glad you're here to help us think about this movie. Thanks so much. I am delighted to be here. It might be one of the biggest honors of my life. Well, in 2011, a Los Angeles couple, John and Molly Chester, decided to upend their cosmopolitan lifestyle, and they bought a piece of dried-out land north of the city and dedicated themselves to converting it into a fully biodiverse agricultural farm named Apricot Lane Farms. This move was in accordance with Molly's long-held dream, but John also happens to be an Emmy Award-winning director and cinematographer, so over the eight years of bringing this farm to life, they have been chronicling their story on film, which now comes together as the feature documentary, Biggest Little Farm. Because it's John and Molly telling their own story, this thing is profoundly personal. It's not a critical look. It's a reflective love letter to the dream they had and the way in which it has grown and changed them over time. It's also clearly designed to be a story with widespread mainstream appeal. This thing premiered at Telluride last year, and then it won awards at Toronto. And last weekend, when I saw Endgame, this movie was the second trailer on the docket, right after the brand new Star Wars movie. So clearly somebody is expecting big things. But all of that rests on whether or not John and Molly have told an important story about our relationship to the land. And Nate, I think you can answer that a lot better than I can. Tell me this, did Biggest Little Farm work for you? And and how does it connect to the theological work that you do at the farminary every day? Yeah, so in a nutshell, I think it did work. I found myself watching it with a number of different hats on. But if I put my farmer hat on sort of as my first response, the farmer in me was connecting with their farm, was connecting with the farmers that are featured in this film and at some at some basic level I was I was cheering for them which to me feels like uh, a win it feels like that's part of the work they wanted to do with the film I wanted them to succeed um I was moved by their struggle I was um captivated by their vision for a particular kind of relationship to place and to neighbors um and so, I, you know, I think they were really fair and helpful, uh, specifically regarding the, the interconnectedness of life and death, which is something we could certainly talk a lot about. Um, but also with my farm hat on, I did have uh, some some big questions. And the single biggest question is an economic one. Uh, I just found myself wishing for a lot more transparency about the economic model of the farm. They, they, <laughs> yeah, they mentioned both. at the beginning. 
yeah, they mentioned at the beginning, you know, that they told their story to a bunch of people. They found at least one investor. Um, and then, and then for most of the film, you just watch them spend money. Um, and, and so there's, there's clearly another, there's something else going on here. Um, and, and I don't know what the model was. So that, that left questions for me. And I don't know that I would be critical of the model. I just am, am incredibly curious about it. So, so yeah, in a nutshell, I think it did work. I think it was a compelling story. Uh, and, and maybe they wanted to raise the question of the economic model. Uh, would you use it in a, I would use this at church. Yeah, totally. And they clearly, if you go to the website, they're, they're all set up for like arrange your group screenings, talk about your, like your class field trip. Like they, they are all in on knowing that part of their marketing plan for this is thinking about education. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the low hanging critique here is. Like it's still so saturated in privilege um, that I don't, you know, I could I could show it sort of provocatively, and students would rail against these rich white Californians, and so there's a there, there's a utility there, but you know, but it, it actually gets me back to the economic thing. Like if I, I want to know, like was if if film production was an economic goal from day one, right? That's actually really interesting, right? Because right. you're you're taking, I bet it is. They're ta- they're taking you know agriculture, but they're not just accepting it on their you know in someone else's terms, and it actually pushes back against their use of the term traditional. Yeah. Also, they've they've got a tourist thing going now too. I mean, they're showing the tourists at the end who are coming by yeah. and visiting Emma the Pig. Like, what is what does that revenue stream look like? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. I, you know, I I honestly I think. I think he's probably selling some really good stock footage, right? Like mm. there's a there's a whole another market where you can provide footage for particular nature stuff. Yeah. And he I has mean, so now he has this he has the equipment, he has the place to like gather this stuff and the means, right? Yeah. So I bet there there's this like a, a small production company that's sort of beginning to operate out of this as well, yeah. which would be a really fascinating way to think about how to mm-hmm. run a farm. Mm-hmm. Well, and and honestly, like the footage was that's hands down the best part of of the thing. Like I to see, I don't know what his his shots per second were on the on the ladybug flapping its wings. Right, it was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and the type of camera, like the type of equipment that you need to do that, yeah, is not a. Uh, um, that's not a little startup company that. Can. Yeah, I can't do that with my phone. <laughs> there is, I think, deep within sort of um, the agrarian or an agrarian mindset is this understanding and a ministerial mindset, I would say, is this understanding of how you assess the resources that are at hand. How do you know kind of what you have and how you um, leverage all of that towards this broader vitality? And I think you can make the case that that's exactly what they're doing. And his skill as a cinematographer, as a photographer, are not incidental to, but become integral to the flourishing of of this farm. I think that's something to celebrate and, and it's something that shouldn't be missed by a farmer or a pastor who's watching this to say, you know, well, I don't have whatever. Well, but what are the resources at hand? What are the, where's the abundance kind of in your midst? That, that's, I mean, that's, that is strikingly parallel to your situation right now, Nate, which is like you being a theologian and be, having a PhD in practical theology is not incidental to the work that you're doing at the farm right now. And in fact, right. You wouldn't be doing that work in the farm had you not had that in, <laughs> that credentialing. There's yeah. um, that the that that a seminary took the the chance to use this particular idea required someone who you know if they're going to invest it required them to be confident that they had someone who could do the theological education side and the farming side right and that type of I would say integrated type of identity is is not is no longer incidental to to farming and especially the type of farming that um, that the world needs or yeah. that is going to be profitable or sustainable economically. Yeah, yeah. And one of the 
I mean, what I would say is a sort of theological affirmation inherent to where I find myself. And I think you can read it off of uh, John and Molly and the way his photography skills factor into this uh, and her passion and all the things. But like there's a sense in which nothing gets wasted along the way. Everything has a purpose. Everything can contribute to this bigger thing, which and I at some level, I think that's that is the work that they wanted the film to do. So. What's interesting about this movie is it's trying to talk about some ecosystem that is harm in harmonious. I think this is the word that they used over and over again is harmony. And, um, as you were watching this, um, what, what rang true to you about their struggles with respect to trying to figure out how to, how to make a balanced, harmonious environment. And is such a thing even possible? Because I think this movie by the end of it is saying like, that's the goal, but the goal is always moving. The target is always moving. The balance is always shifting. And to some extent, you know, this image of riding a wave that gets used over and over again with, um, with respect to the working on the farm, maybe is not as apt as like putting out fires, which is also a major <laughs> part of this, um, of this story. So as you looked at, at the work that they were doing and the work that you do at the farm and area, how, like what is, is harmony the goal is, is it possible? And, um, what do we gain when we seek it? I'm not opposed to harmony. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> I bring endorsement of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't think harmony is a bad way to think of it. I mean, I, my background in music and my identity as farmer, the, the part there that's compelling is that harmony assumes that different players are contributing in different ways it's it's not a monotone it's not a unison endeavor and i think that is appropriate they're trying to figure out how sort of the vast players in that ecosystem can all contribute but it's like you said the the field literally is always changing beneath your feet the one of the images that that was profound in this film was they show this these images of them arriving at this farm that they purchase and Molly has this big clump of dirt in her hand and she throws it to the ground and it doesn't even break it's just it's just like this solid rock that isn't a rock it, you know it should crumble if it was if it was any kind of good soil but it's just this rock and then you fast forward and you get to see to the end and this um kind of rich particulate loamy soil that they've created but but you know the on one way to look at that is that with that image at the beginning there's almost no life there and so as they're slowly bringing this bit of land back to life, they're, they're continually bringing new species into the ecosystem. And as they bring new species, then they have to figure out how to cooperate, uh, live harmoniously with those species. Um, and that creates its own challenges. Um, I mean, I can jump to theological education and ministry pretty quickly with these things if, you know, is, is the trajectory of theological education or our ministries um, moving towards, you know, lifeless clumps of, <laughs> of, in, of inanimate matter? Or, or is it something more hospitable where you do attract diverse forms of life? And then how will you respond when those diverse forms of life show up and, and alter the equilibrium somewhat, um, mess with the harmony or the rhythm, and then you have to adapt. So, um, so I thought, no, I think that, the that bringing on the, the attracting of, of a new species, sometimes intentionally, sometimes by accident is it's, it's a very real thing. It's, it's, you know, something that we face at the farm and area where, we have the soil that we kind of inherited uh, from pre previous owners, and it's a it's kind of a wildly depleted soil with little organic matter, and and we're kind of, we're trying to do something similar of of building vitality and and building fertility, and as you do that, 
um, there are unexpected challenges. Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, one of the uh, refrains that this movie develops over time is this idea about uh, as as these new elements present themselves into the ecosystem, as the diversity of life begins to expand, that the the refrain that John develops is this thing about observation and creative problem solving, that instead of immediately going after the coyote or immediately going after the the gopher you are watching and trying to figure out uh, what what hidden gift this neighbor might present to you what way is this new neighbor able to claim their their role in what is a broadening circle of life and i i think about that in the context of of church ministry, I mean, you've already started to make this move. And you know, in my congregation right now, we are thinking a lot about neighborhood um, because we are a church in a, in a campus community where most of our congregants don't live immediately close by. And so the, the neighborhood around us uh, can at times feel sort of wild and other and strange to us. And uh, and this refrain about observation has been very helpful for me in thinking about how we approach a neighborhood that feels foreign, because it puts us not in the position of uh, thinking those those foreign or strange or different elements are are problems that in and of themselves need to be solved. Perhaps they are are instead kind of questions that we need to listen to. So what does it mean for us as a church to go into our neighborhood with listening ears instead of kind of a hammer and a nail looking for something to, to pin down? Yeah. I mean, that observation reminds me of the somewhat cheesy overturning of the cliche. Don't just sit there, do something, uh, and into don't just do something, sit there. And, um, this question of observation, I think, is absolutely key. And uh, it has been a practice at the farminary with some regularity to invite students to simply leave the barn and find a place somewhere at the farm and just pay attention. Mm-hmm. And when when we're programmed to constantly be doing something that practice of paying attention can actually be pretty disorienting, but it also holds within it. I think that potential that you're talking about Matt with you can recognize or, or come to know a neighbor as a neighbor instead of as a threat, which may be the first kind of gut reaction. I think that's, I mean, that's such an important part of this movie, in part because John is not a farmer by birth or by training. He's, he's, a, he's a cinematographer, right? And so he's actually really used to watching. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he's a nature cinematographer. So he's, my suspicion is that he spends long periods of time waiting for something to happen. Right. That that the nature photographer in particular is is waits and waits and waits and waits to get the shot um, because animals are unpredictable. You can't block animals like you can human beings. And um, and therefore that in some ways has has predisposed him for good farming, at least according to his thesis, um, because it it has given him practices of attention and practices of waiting and patience to try and figure out, okay, so what is this thing's purpose here? Yeah. I mean, I think there are some immediate parallels to be drawn between, and and I should confess, like as far as the cinema goes, I am inept almost a hundred percent. And yet as we were watching this film yesterday, uh, the cinematography is crazy. It it's is brilliant. It's it, really beautiful. It's it's spellbinding. And I think your observations, Adam, about what must have been required 
for him to get those shots. Uh, there's no way you just plan that. It, it, it certainly required endless hours of waiting and, and like endless hours of footage that was never used. I'm sure. Oh my gosh. Um, hard drives and hard drives and hard drives. I cannot even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But that, um, we had, I had students this semester who were doing interviews with local agrarians as part of this, this course at the farminary. And one of them interviewed, uh, Jess Niederer, who is a farmer at Chickadee Creek farm just down the road. Um, she's, received some wonderful attention for her excellent farming. But um, my student who interviewed her asked about problem solving in the farm. And Jess commented on some of the labor at the farm and its monotonous nature. And that once you get into the rhythm of it, you can have a lot of time just to be thinking about life and the farm and the work and those who are working with you. And I think that's, that is directly analogous to what I can imagine the work of cinematography. And you have a lot of time to wait and to sit and to observe. And it, at some level, it's not surprising to me that John might be a, an excellent farmer because his skills in paying attention have been sharpened behind a lens Again, this class we taught this semester, uh, we started each class with three minutes of observation. We would just find a spot on the farm and stare at the compost pile for three minutes or stare at the beehive for three minutes or look at the stream that flows through the farm for three minutes and and let that kind of impact you. And I, I think one of the core sensibilities there is recognizing that, that we are not the source of all of the knowledge and all of the inspiration <laughs> and that at our best, we're trying to receive from the farm. We're trying to receive from the compost pile, from, from the bees and not in a way that turns it into a commodity, but in a way, in a way that recognizes the interdependence there, that our vitality and the vitality of the stream and the compost pile and the beehive are all interconnected. Nate, your comments remind me of that, that, moment in Dan Barber's book, The Third Plate, he's he's interviewing a Mennonite farmer uh, about soil and um, and asked him, what, why do you still use steel tractor tires instead of rubber tractor tires? And the Mennonite farmer says something like, uh, because I love my children. And he he explains, the farmer explains that if, if he has rubber tires, he'll move quicker through his field. And if he moves quicker through his field, he'll lose sight of the soil. And if he loses sight of the soil, then his then he'll lose sight of the crop and his attention will get compromised over time because of the speed with which he farms. And if he, if his attention is compromised, then the, the soil and the farm that he passes on to his children will be compromised. And then they won't have the type of nutrients and sustenance that they need. And then the, the next generation and the next generation, um, you know, earlier in this conversation, you said with the, respect to the farminary, you inherited this, the soil. And I think that that's such an important word to talk about the ways in which we think about the, the soil and the, and the world in which we live, like we inherit it, but we also pass it down. Right. And, um, and it's, uh, and the, the abilities for this soil to produce life, um, is something that we can encourage or something that we can discourage. And, um, and this movie was, has has so many I think really good lessons for ministry for uh, for church work for theological education um, and maybe one of the most important ones is um, is the question of, of life and death that's sort of at the heart of this movie as as you were watching it and as you think about the work that you do on the farm how is you know the interconnectedness of life this pig that you know bears fourteen piglets like and and then the the ways in which death kind of springs up this coyote is a figure that sort of looms large but there's also the ways in which the um the dog that is supposed to um that is supposed to protect the sheep then kills a beloved rooster and 
the ways in which life and death are wrapped up in this movie are, are very complicated. It seems like one of the things that this movie is banking on and that our conversation is banking on are these kind of an inherited definitions around what wild and natural and traditional mean. Uh, and I, and I, I'm, I struggle with that as I watch the film. I mean, we are talking about, uh, we, we're throwing them around interchangeably and yet we still have uh, this the suburban couple that has gone out and and almost terraformed this piece of land. It is not left to its own wild devices. It is very much a, a product of their labor, uh, and so I'm 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 wrestling with that. I'm also wrestling with what counts as the boundaries of natural and wild. Uh, what is the difference between this spot of land an hour outside of Los Angeles and what they might have been able to do in their backyard. I, I struggle with that as someone who lives very much in kind of suburban urban space. Uh, what is the, um, do we have to, do I have to move out to the Texas Hill country to, to live in a way that feels holistic in the way this film I think is hinting at what is the distinction between, um, how, what does natural look like in all the different contexts that we find ourselves? My experience with the farm narrative situated close to Princeton, New Jersey, where the seminary actually has this 21 acre parcel puts us in a different context where it's mostly suburban and a little bit rural, but not rural at all compared to, you know, the West or even Kansas where I grew up. Um, but the lines are blurry and, and I do think there is this common question about, you know, to get back to holism or to get back to this sort of harmonious ecosystem. And, and I think it has been an error, I would say of, of humanity in the past to only be able to imagine kind of a pristine creation that is not peopled. So, so, so nature is, is, is good if we remove people from the equation, except we're here. So, so what do we do? And then what does that right relationship look like between humankind and the broader context, whether that context is urban or rural or suburban and, or, or anywhere in between, um, so I think at the farmery we're, we're faced with it in, in different ways because of population density in a way that certainly doesn't come through in the film for biggest little farm, um, and proximity to, uh, wild and or domestic spaces and how these things are interacting with each other and bumping into each other. Um, there was, I had is something like a surreal and an unbelievable experience in watching this film yesterday. Um, last summer, we had our first uh, experiments of having livestock at the farm, had two small flocks of chickens that we raised and um, felt like we learned a lot. The second flock was seemed like a great success. Uh, we grew these birds for meat. Um, so this year we're geared up for our second year of, of raising chickens. And when I sat down to watch the, the film yesterday in, out of my garage were 45 chicks that were brooding in there, preparing to move out to the farm, had like 30 barred rock, three week old chickens and 15, four day old blue silky bantams. Uh, they're cute little fluff balls. Um, and watch this film, finish it. Family likes it. We decided we want to get pizza for dinner. So we order pizza and I go out to, I'm leaving to go get the pizza. I walk out, decide to check on the chicks and, uh, the older ones need some fresh water. I give them fresh water, get in the car. I go get the pizza. I'm gone for maybe 25 minutes. And when I come back in to my drive, which is middle of Princeton, um, there is a red fox 
standing in my driveway looking at me with two chickens hanging out of its mouth. Oh, man. And I, uh, I walk in. I, I, I jump out of the car. I holler at the fox. It kind of saunters off. I go into the, into the garage to discover um, that this fox in this relatively short amount of time has killed all of the uh, four-day-old blue silky bantams except for two of them and, uh, and has killed about uh, a dozen of the 30 uh, barbed rock chicks. And, and they're everywhere, all over the garage. And it's um, all, all of the questions about like the relationship between a domestic space or a cultivated space and a wild space and an agricultural space are like thrust into your the depths of your viscera. And, and you feel <laughs> things in that moment where um, I, you know, to, to, to put it really sort of baldly, I... I if I would have had the opportunity to take that fox's life in that moment, I don't think I would have hesitated. Hmm. Um, that's that's a reality that that John and Molly were facing regularly. Yeah, and and they put that on the film in a way that I think was responsible. But even the film is a mediator, right? And even in this conversation, uh, the recording is this mediator. Mm -hmm. And so to, to put yourself into the physical proximity, uh, of these things is messes with us at the level of life and death for me to enter into that garage and, and to see the, the chicks that were dead was, was terrible. It was even worse to see the chicks that were severely injured and needed to be put out of their misery. Right. So that's, there's, there's a depth of reality there that is, is actually impossible to approximate through, through film, I think, or through a recording. And it raises these much larger questions about how we understand the relationship between humankind and the rest of creation and our assumptions about our relationship to domestic spaces or, or, or wild spaces and, and food in particular and, and where that comes from. Um, these, these kind of are the questions and, and, and I think that they're gospel questions. I mean, we're still sort of an Easter tide here and we make this profession that somehow our faith depends on this movement through life, uh, or through death to new life but what does that even mean? And, and, and is that, where do we feel that in our bodies and where do we feel it in our communities? And, and is it, is it only an intellectual ascent or when and how does it strike us at the level of our viscera? And it seems to me that I'm as much human in my viscera as I am in my intellect. And, um, and there's, there's, I don't have easy answers for this. Well, I think that's a perfect and perfectly difficult story to help us transition. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the scripture for this coming Sunday. But before we do that, I want to tell you that support for Sunday Morning Matinee comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. Build critical skills for Christian ministry with a two-year Master of Religious Leadership. Choose from six areas of specialization, including youth ministry, worship and music, pastoral care, Mission, Evangelism, and World Christianity, Peacebuilding and Conflict Transformation, and Wesleyan Leadership and Heritage. Details at candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning. We are also grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the good work that they're doing. Not too long ago, they published a piece on the farminary, right, Nate? That is correct. Yeah, and the work Nate's doing there and the work that the students are doing there and the ways in which the farm is uh, is a part of theological education. Um, I'll put that link on the show page. You should go and read it. It's really well done. Um, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Nate, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, looking at the lectionary passages for May 12th, this coming Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Easter season. We have Peter raising Tabitha from the dead in Acts. We have Psalm 23. Maybe you've heard of it. 
We have the heavenly host and the lamb on the throne in Revelation 7, and we have Jesus's cryptic message in John 10. Nate, I'm curious, as you looked at these passages, what stood out to you uh, as connected potentially to the biggest little farm? So the imagery for me that came through in these passages, it was also in the Revelation passage for this past Sunday. Um, But it's this question, who gets to sing in heaven? Is the question that's going through uh, my mind specifically from, from yesterday's Revelation text. And I think it applies here. And then this imagery around sheep is is curious to me um it just strikes me that somehow i grew up with and i don't know who to blame other than maybe myself but when i imagine the end of time and the afterlife somehow my default is to think it's a bunch of people and god in heaven and that's this wildly it's that vision is a wild reduction of the image that comes to us in revelation where all of the creatures every creature is is participating here and then you have this lamb on the throne and and i have to say this this question of the worship of the lamb who was slain reminds me of a story from early on in the farminary journey I was meeting, having breakfast with a local farmer uh, who works at, or at the time worked at the Lawrenceville School, where they are farming part of their property and cooperating with their dining service, and it's this cool arrangement. But Jake, this farmer, had a stubborn ewe lamb that he didn't know what to do with. Uh, He said this ewe was just a complete pain in the neck. And he was caught in this sort of ethical dilemma of he, he couldn't keep the U. It was, it was too much trouble, but he couldn't really sell it to another farmer because he would just be unloading his, his problem lamb on another farmer. And so after much deliberation and conversation with a, another local farmer, he decides that the, the best outcome is to actually um, butcher this lamb. So he calls up another local farmer uh, who has the knowledge of how to do this. And uh, this other local farmer says, yes, I'm, I'm happy to help you with this. Bring the ewe over to my farm. We'll let her acclimate uh, for a week or so. And then you could come over and, and I'll help you butcher this lamb. And so Jake did this. He had never done anything like this before. He participates in the butchering, the killing, the butchering of this lamb and is kind of taken aback at how profoundly moved he is by this scenario. And as he's telling me this story, he says he's, he's, he's mid-process with, with taking the life of this lamb, with the butchering. He's got blood all over his hands, and he's so moved by it, he decides he needs to call his wife. And he calls his wife, and he tells her, he says, look, he says, all of the meat that we eat should die like this. And um, as he's telling the story again, he he kind of stops himself. And I have no idea about Jake's sort of faith tradition. I don't know if he has a faith tradition, but he catches himself and he looks at me and he remembers I'm coming at this as as part of my association with the seminary. And he looks at me and he says, wait a minute. He said, you all profess to worship the lamb that was slain. How can you? say that you know what that means if you've never participated in a process like this. And I, I just remember being taken aback by, by the whole scenario. Wow. And, hmm. and, and I walked away from it, not thinking, Oh, well we need all the seminarians to butcher lambs. Um, <laughs> but, but what I did think, and it comes through, I think in these passages is there is, there's a body of knowledge. There's a body of affection. There's a familiarity that, that is mostly lost to our contemporary context and and the ability of these scripture passages to speak to us um, is directly impacted by our familiarity or our lack of familiarity with something as apparently simple as sheep. And so, you know, 
sheep figure prominently in in the biggest little farm. They're all over Psalm 23. Then we have this lamb on the throne. We have, you know, post-Easter, this this idea that somehow Christ is both shepherd and lamb. And and if we've never cared for a lamb or known a shepherd, there's a lot that's just missing, um, which is is kind of sobering. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's such an interesting story. I mean, so have you, with respect to these chickens that you are, you know, that you are raising, how are those figuring into the theological education? Because at some point you're you're going to slaughter them. So what's like, how do you do that? Yeah. So this question of of how we slaughter, why we slaughter and and how we kind of prepare ourselves for that. I had a moment last summer in preparing for all this when I came to the stark realization. I I never, because of my background uh, farming and um, doing other things, I never questioned my sort of ability or my fortitude as far as being able to take the life of a chicken and, and butcher it. I knew I could do that. The sobering moment was when I realized it would be qualitatively different um, for me to do that compared to leading other people to do that. Um, it's just, it's just completely different. Uh, so, so last summer, uh, I went out um, kind of a week before I led students through this and, and butchered four chickens on my own, um, went through the process, just wanted to make sure that, that I had kind of a handle on this. And then a week later led, uh, three or four students who volunteered, uh, want to make, make it clear. I didn't coerce <laughs> it's compulsory, into, right. yeah, it's part of their degree a, program, not, not a part of the degree program. Um, but what was interesting is is these students, in some sense, felt compelled um, to be a yeah. part of this. They helped care for these chickens as they grew up, and and wanted to be there as as part of the ending. And um, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done with students um, to lead them through this. And um, that boundary between life and death is a sacred thing. Um, I can't explain exactly why it feels different to step on a spider than to kill a chicken, but it does. And perhaps the blood has something to do with that, but to, to do this on purpose with the intent of nourishing yourself with this chicken is, is, um, is not to be taken lightly. And one of the interesting things that happened in on this journey was, um, as the students knew from the beginning that we were growing these chickens um, so that we would ultimately butcher them. Um, and so there was a lot of anticipation and, and there was a lot of conversation leading up to it. And I tried to do a lot of work making sure that the students knew that they could opt out. This was not a competition and just tried to, to do this as responsibly as possible. So we, we went through this and then we finally make our way to the day of the slaughter. We do the slaughter and, um, and when it's done on that day, I remember thinking to myself, was this all a big mistake? Hmm. And I just knew that at least one or two of the students were, were relatively troubled by this whole thing. And there were some other circumstances that played into it, but it became clear I needed to regather this group of students and we needed to process this. And so we, we, we got together and, and we debriefed and, and frankly, it, it didn't go very well. Um, there was a sense in which that the struggle of that experience of killing and butchering the chickens cracked open other struggles interpersonally within the, these group, this group of students. And, um, and so we got together and in my mind, we're going to debrief and this is going to provide some closure for the thing. And instead it feels like we've got more problems. <laughs> we're, we're uncovering more struggle. 
And, and somewhere in the midst of that, we decided, I decided, um, or as a group, we decided that, that we had made actually a, a core theological and pedagogical mistake. Um, somewhere along the way on this journey with these chickens, we were so fixated on the end of their lives that, that, that became kind of the thing we were anticipating. And in some sort of theological pedagogical way, it was giving death the last word in the story with the chickens. And we decided that it, we couldn't, that couldn't work for us. Um, and so we planned then a, a closing meal where we would gather together and we would prepare a couple of these chickens and we would celebrate their lives. We would celebrate our work together and, um, and we would kind of go from there. And so a couple of weeks later, we were able to do this. We gathered, we had this, this meal, this potluck, we invited our, our families, um, gathered in our backyard and, and that was kind of the moment of, of closure. Um, it was kind of a celebration. It was that moment of like, <laughs> if you're only raising a chicken to kill it, um, that's, that doesn't seem quite right. I don't think it stands up. Um, but to, to, to not merely want to take the life, but to also have a broader trajectory that says we actually don't affirm that death gets the last word. Uh, it's always moving towards greater vitality and towards new life. Um, that was an important shift that, that happened there. Thanks, Nate. I think that's a, a beautiful way for us to, to, uh, live into the richness and the complexity of this text and this film. And I'm so appreciate your time to come and tell us stories from the farminary and to help us reflect on, on this work. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll look forward to having you back on the show real soon. It's been my privilege. Thanks so much. Okay, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So we've been talking a little bit about death in this episode, and I've been thinking a little bit about public grief, um, particularly in the wake of the death of Rachel Held Evans last week. Uh, Adam, I don't, I don't know if you had, had read much of her work. Rachel was a, a fairly prominent kind of post-evangelical author uh, whose name I'm sure is pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners. Uh, to be to be frank, uh, I am so steeped in the mainline church and I'm so inside the mainline church that her writing was never for me. Uh, and so it, it I didn't don't feel the personal connection here. And yet I am watching so many friends and colleagues mourn her death online and in a way that just has me thinking about the importance and the critical work of offering public testimony and public storytelling about the people that we love uh, and the ways in which they continue to, to be with us and shape us and the ways in which the, those holes continue to, to haunt us after they're gone. Uh, I'm thinking about it, too, especially in the wake of uh, Adam Sandler's hosting of Saturday Night Live this weekend, uh, in which the closing of SNL was Sandler's sung tribute to Chris Farley. Uh, Farley was a, a comedian on SNL that worked with Adam Sandler way back uh, in the mid-90s. And then Chris Farley died in 1997 at 33 as, as a, after a drug overdose. Um and there, and yet there is something, you know, 22 years later, profound about Sandler getting up on the stage at SNL and singing this song, which is a kind of public testimony and a kind of public eulogy and a kind of public statement of loss. And the fact that it resonates so deeply this long past, I think is really telling about the ways in which grief works and the way the long shadow that it casts and our constant need and our important need to be able to tell stories about the folks that 
um, that we miss and the folks that have helped shape us. So I'm, I'm mourning Rachel Held Evans and, and I'm mourning Chris Farley. And I'm more than that. I'm just kind of in awe about our ability and the important work that we do, uh, as, as storytellers in times of grief. So Matt, we don't, you, we don't typically plan the postludes. We just kind of have them keep them to ourselves before we say them. But I want to talk about Rachel Hall Evans too. Um, I, I, I didn't know her. I didn't interact with her, but we live in a world where our, our, the two degrees of separation or the one degree of separation, um, between us is, is sort of constant. And, um, and like you, they're friends who are mourning, um, you know, as we were preparing for this and I was looking at Nate's, new book she had blurred the back of it and said this is something this this book as she was talking about nate's work um is something that i will return to for for the months and years to come mm-hmm. and that was just so deeply tragic reading it i mean um because she didn't have years and um and i read that and um and it sort of spiraled me to think about all of the time that we think that we have and um how, uh, how none of it's promised, but also, uh, how our hopes, um, in the future are, are, are given to us by these visions and promises of God and, um, and how her work over the course of not very long, you know, was helped other people reconcile their past first of all, which I think is like a vital and important part of her work, but also began to think about like what their future might look like. And, and I'm just really grateful and thankful for her work that it, it, that there will be people who will turn to it in the months and years to come, that there is something that was left behind a voice, a personality, some wisdom that, um, that has, um, some breadth and can be accessed. And, um, and in the wake of tragedy, I'm grateful for that deep, um, but sometimes small, um, legacy that we, other people might inherit what she, what she wrote. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for all of those little things that people leave behind to help us remember. And I am likewise grateful for you and grateful for this show and grateful for the ways in which it has connected us with so many folks whose work uh, continues to speak to me and continues to linger with me. And I'm, I'm glad for the chance to be a part of that conversation in our own small way. So yeah, amen. That about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Pod. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.